The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Catholic Home on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Teresa, and on this episode, I'm joined by Camille. Welcome back, Camille. Thanks for having me again, Teresa. You're welcome. This episode is a members-only episode and is not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit restorationradionetwork.org and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. Today's show is about Catholic customs in the home for the liturgical seasons after the Christmas season ends, with an emphasis on Lent and Easter. Now Camille presented some great ideas for Advent and Christmas in her debut episode, and now she will share some more inspiring customs for February onward, including and mostly for Lent and Easter. So Camille, where would you like to start? Well, I guess I'd better repeat what I said in the show we did about Advent and Christmas, and that is to say that the best way to spend all our liturgical seasons is daily assistance at Holy Mass. I mean, the true Tridentine Mass, offered by a true Catholic priest and not offered unicum heretics. Unfortunately, since many of us haven't this option anymore, what we can do instead is to daily pray the liturgical prayers using, for example, a Missal or Dom Garanger's The Liturgical Year. The important thing is to pray and do readings in sync with Holy Mother Church during each season. After you've assisted at Mass, or at least prayed according to the liturgical season, then you should consider adding some Catholic customs to your schedule. Okay, before getting into Lenten customs, have you any traditions to share with us for any special feats during February through to April? Yes, well, 40 days after Christmas, on February 2nd, we celebrate the Feast of the Purification. This feast commemorates Mary's obedience to the Mosaic Law by submitting herself for purification at the Temple. We of course know that Mary didn't need purification as she was born completely free from sin, but it was out of humility and obedience to the Law. On this day we also commemorate what is known as Candlemas. This is when Our Lady and Saint Joseph presented Our Lord in the Temple, and the holy man Simeon told his prophecy to them after being inspired by the Holy Ghost. Behold, this child is set for the fall, and for the resurrection of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be contradicted, and thy own soul a sword shall pierce, that out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. Now because before he told this prophecy to Our Lady, Simeon had referred to the Christ child as the light to the revelation of the Gentiles, so light and candles play an important role before and during the Mass for this day, and this is where we get the name Candlemas from. Some traditional foods to be eaten on Candlemas are tamales and hot chocolate in Mexican tradition, and crepes are a European tradition. I came across a very good article that's worth reading about blessed candles. Blessed candles are sacramentals. This means that Holy Church, by her prayers and blessings, makes them sacred articles, which, when used with respect and great faith, bestow countless blessings and graces on all. 
On Candlemas, the Church blesses wax candles in a most solemn ceremony. On this day, we honour the Divine Child Jesus as a light to illumine the Gentiles. At the blessing, on this day, the priest pronounces five beautiful prayers. In the first prayer, he addresses Almighty God as follows. O Holy Lord, Father Almighty, Eternal God, we humbly beseech Thee that Thou wouldst vouchsafe to bless and to sanctify these candles for the service of men, and for the health of bodies and souls, be they on land or water, and wouldst hear from Thy holy heaven, from the throne of Thy majesty, the voice of this Thy people, who desire reverently to bear them in their hands and to praise Thee in song, and wouldst show mercy to all that call upon Thee. In this blessing, the effects of the blessed candles are briefly stated. The other prayers continue to explain these effects. If during the year the priest is asked to bless candles, he uses the following prayer. O Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, we implore thee to bless these candles, and through the power of the Holy Cross to bestow upon them thy heavenly benediction, who has given them to mankind to dispel darkness, and may they, through the sign of the Holy Cross, obtain such blessings that wherever they may be lighted, or wherever they be placed, the powers of darkness may vanish, trembling and affrighted, with all their aids and accomplices, and be driven from these dwellings, and never again dare disquiet or molest them that serve thee, Almighty God. The above proves to us what rich blessings we derive through the merits of Jesus Christ when we use the blessed candles in a spirit of faith. When we do not make frequent use of blessed candles, we lose precious graces. The faithful should make use of them in times of sickness or plague, when storms are raging on land or sea, in seasons of drought or excessive rains, every day at least for a short period to ask God's protection in the home and on members of the family, to prevent discord, hatred and ill will, in times of doubt, distress and anxiety, when a child is born, when in danger from fire or flood, in times of persecution, and also burning constantly at the bedside of the dying and for the relief of the souls in purgatory. So based on everything you said, we'd all be mad not to make sure to stock up on and regularly use blessed candles. Now there's a special blessing of the church which involves the use of such candles, which comes the day after Candlemas. Would you please explain that, Camille? Yes, well, one of the truly beautiful and powerful Catholic customs is the blessing of throats on the Feast of St. Blaise, which is on February 3rd. Uh, St. Blaise was a 3rd century physician, and he's one of the holy helpers and the patron saint of those with illness or conditions associated with the throat. This is because one day a woman brought her dying son to St. Blaise for help, as the child was choking on a fishbone that was lodged in his throat. St. Blaise laid his hand upon the boy, asking God to bestow health upon the child, and the boy was cured. To this day, the blessing of the throats is a custom kept by the church, and this involves firstly the blessing of two candles, which are then crossed over and held against the sides of the throat, as the priest says, Per intercessionem St. Blasii liberet te Deus amalo, guteris et aquobis alio malo, which in English is... May God, at the intercession of St. Blaise, preserve you from throat trouble and every other evil. And then the priest makes the sign of the cross over the person receiving the blessing. Well, actually, I have a little anecdote which testifies to the power of this blessing. And a bit of background, I had a long-standing thyroid condition which flared up really badly during the pregnancy of my ninth child. And it was such that after my baby was born, although prior to that I had what would be called remarkable fecundity, This thyroid condition had become so severe that it actually rendered me infertile. And around that time, 
I was praying to some saints to help me just manage this illness. And then one day it hit me that I should be praying to St. Blaise. Now, when I was a child and we would have this annual blessing of the throats on his feast day, people would say things like, well, now this should cure or protect you from a sore throat. And I remember thinking, like, what's the big deal about having a sore throat? And it seems like a lot of trouble doing this blessing and invoking a saint just for a nothing sore throat that's going to be going away soon enough anyway. So I never quite understood that. But then a few years ago when this thyroid crisis occurred, I realized now this is probably more what the church had in mind for such a blessing. And especially since my research showed that this hypothyroidism, this condition, and similar throat diseases are actually surprisingly common these days. So for anyone out there who might have you know, some sort of thyroid condition like this, don't forget St. Blaise because I started praying to St. Blaise and the following year we were fortunate enough to have Mass at a mission centre on his actual feast. So when I went up for the throat blessing from the priest, I prayed that my thyroid would be just temporarily cured just enough so I could have one more baby. So I wasn't asking for too much, just one more. And less than a month later, I discovered that I was with child, Deo Gracias, and in November I gave birth to the healthiest, biggest baby boy, whom, of course, you can guess we named Blaze. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Yeah, I also just always thought of the St. Blaze blessing just in relation to sore throats, and I didn't even think to invoke his intercession for more serious things like thyroid problems. Well, soon after the Feast of St. Blaise, we come to a very well-known and popular celebration on February 14th, being St. Valentine's Day. It's interesting to think how many people all over the world celebrate this feast, and most of them would have absolutely no idea what it really represents, or even that it's a religious feast commemorating a saint in heaven. St. Valentine was a Roman priest during the time of Claudius II. At this time, marriage had been outlawed by Claudius II because he thought it was distracting his soldiers. However, St. Valentine continued to perform marriages in spite of this, and he was then martyred in the year 270 AD. So, due to his celebration of nuptial masses, St. Valentine became the patron of young lovers, engaged and married couples. Some symbols of this day are birds, particularly lovebirds and doves, and this is because it's believed that halfway through the month of February, is when a bird will choose its mate. Also, the colour red is particularly symbolic of this day, as red is not only a colour that represents martyrdom, but also love. Now, it's encouraged to give gifts to your loved ones on this day. However, just remember that it is more the thought that counts. There is no need to be overly extravagant. A single rose and a small box of chocolates is more than enough to bestow upon your beloved. The most important thing is to show them that you have remembered the feast, and to express your love and appreciation for them in your life. So, when celebrating this feast, always make sure to wish people a happy Saint Valentine's Day and not shorten it to the secular Valentine's Day. We must always remember that we are celebrating the feast of a martyr and not dismiss the religious significance of this day. And interestingly, there are actually three Saints Valentine whose feasts all fall on February 14th and all of them are martyrs. So... All of our listeners, you can have a bit of fun wishing your friends a happy Feast of Saints Valentine, and they might think you've made a grammatical or spelling error, and they might question or correct you on this. Now, accepting, of course, those friends who have listened to the show, or those who already knew this interesting little fun fact about this feast day. Good point. Well, soon after Saints Valentine Day, 
comes St. Patrick's Day on March 17th. Uh, there was already a Catholic home show in season four about St. Patrick's Day parties, I believe, so I won't go into that aspect, but I will mention a couple of things my family does to honour St. Patrick on his feast. It's quite a big deal in my family as we are part Irish and St. Patrick is the patron of my mother and he's also my, it's also my younger brother's middle name, so... Here comes the rain. I don't know if the, the microphone's picking that up, but anyway, I'm sure they can still hear you, so keep going. I know that in certain parts of the world it's actually a first-class feast, so it, I think it goes diocese by diocese. Where I live over in Perth, it, it's not a first-class feast, so we don't get let off of fasting or anything. But we still celebrate and allow little sweets and treats, things that we might have given up for Lent. We tend to eat a lot of green food, things like green jelly or jello for the Americans, green cordial, mint candy, even some salad vegetables. We have a total green feast. Well, as long as you refrain from going green with envy, you'll be fine. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, another great custom to include in your St. Patrick's Day celebration is to recite the Lorica, or Breastplate, of St. Patrick. It's rather long, so I won't recite the whole thing now, but the way it starts is... I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three. I bind this day to me forever... By power of faith, Christ's incarnation, his baptism in the Jordan River, his death on cross for my salvation, his bursting from the spiced tomb, his riding up the heavenly way, his coming at the day of doom, I bind unto myself today. It then continues on for seven additional stanzas with variations such as Against the demon snares of sin, the vice that gives temptation force, the natural lusts that war within, the hostile men that mar my course. Or few or many, far or nigh, in every place and in all hours, against their fierce hostility, I bind to me these holy powers. And it then ends with, I bind unto myself the name, the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word. Praise to the Lord of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. Oh, that really is such a beautiful prayer. And it's a great custom to include in your St. Patrick's Day celebrations. And if you have any trouble finding the full version, feel free to send us an email and we can point you in the right direction. I imagine it shouldn't be too hard to find, though. So next, on March 25th, is the Feast of the Annunciation. So what can you share with us on this, Camille? Well, some great prayers to include in your routine on the Annunciation, which is also known as Lady Day, are the Magnificat, the Litany of Loretto, the little crown of the Blessed Virgin and the joyful or glorious mysteries of the Rosary in honour of Our Lady. I actually found a beautiful poem by G.K. Chesterton that alludes to the litany of Loretto and evokes wonder at the relationship between our Lord and his mother, so I'll I'll recite that now. It's called A Little Litany. When God turned back eternity and was young, ancient of days, grown little for your mirth, as under the low arch the land is bright, peered through you gate of heaven and saw the earth, or shutting out his shining skies awhile, built you about him for a house of gold, to see in pictured walls his storied world, return upon him as a tale is told. Or found his mirror there, the only glass, that would not break with that unbearable light, till a corner of the high dark house, God looked on God as ghosts meet in the night. Star of his morning, that unfallen star, in that strange starry overturn of space, when earth and sky changed places for an hour, 
and heaven looked upwards in a human face. Or young on your strong knees and lifted up, wisdom cried out whose voice is in the street. And more than twilight of twi-formed cherubim, made of his throne indeed a mercy seat. Or risen from play at your pale raiment's hem, God grown adventurous from all time's repose, or your tall body climbed the ivory tower and kissed upon your mouth the mystic rose. I also found this inf- interesting information on a website. When Lady Day falls on Good Friday, it is transferred to the Monday following Low Sunday, which is the Sunday after Easter. English folk belief is that this coincidence of dates is actually a bad sign and that bad luck is sure to follow it. The English say, If our Lord falls in Our Lady's lap, England will meet with a great mishap. In 2005, the coming together of these days was followed by terrorist attacks on London's subways. Our Lord will again fall in Our Lady's lap this year, 2016, so it will be interesting to see if anything happens. Gee, you get it all in this Catholic home, you get poetry, you get superstition, you get it all. So, <laughs> anyway, I will actually add here that instead of giving my children days off homeschool on the secular public holidays, what we usually do is you give the children a few holy days off instead each year. And the Feast of the Annunciation is one of these school holidays in our home. So some great Catholic customs there, Camille. Now, what sort of things can Catholics do during Lent to get into the true spirit of the season? Well, Teresa, to start off with, I'd like to paraphrase from Dom Garanger's The Liturgical Year to provide the proper framework before getting into the details of Lenten customs. The 40 days fast of Lent is the Church's preparation for Easter, and was instituted at the very commencement of Christianity. Our blessed Lord himself sanctioned it by fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. Lent is a time consecrated in a special manner to penance, and this penance is mainly practiced by fasting. We may be sure that a season so sacred as this of Lent is rich in mysteries. The Church has made it a time of recollection and penance in preparation for the greatest of all her feasts. The number 40 denotes punishment and affliction. Remember the 40 days and 40 nights of the deluge sent by God in his anger. Consider the Hebrew people in punishment for their ingratitude who wandered 40 years in the desert and how God commanded the prophet Ezekiel to lie 40 days on his right side as a figure of the siege of the destruction of Jerusalem. Both Moses and Elias had to prepare for the approach of God by a 40-day fast. Thus Lent is brought before us with everything that can impress the mind with its solemn character and with its power of appeasing God and purifying our souls. Remember the words, Unless you shall do penance, you shall perish. Now penance consists in contrition of the soul and mortification of the body. These two parts are essential to it, but it is the soul which gives reality to penance. In addition to fasting and abstinence during Lent, we are also urged to extra prayer and alms deeds. Now to fulfil these requirements, there are many customs which we can draw upon. There are some great ways for children to count and keep track of their sacrifices they make during the Lenten season. You can make charts, or one of my personal favourites is the purple beans in the bowl. It's similar to the straw in the crib that we talked about for Advent, so for every sacrifice the child makes, they place a purple bean in their bowl. Imagine this could also create a bit of healthy competition with all the children wanting to have the most beans by the end of Lent. But hey, (laughs) if if it will encourage them to make more sacrifices, then that's a good thing. Then, of course, the family will cook up all the children's beans at the end of Lent for their family meal. And provided the children make enough sacrifices, the family shouldn't go too hungry that night. (laughs) 
For the adults, it is of course compulsory to fast for the duration of Lent. This means that we're only allowed to have two small meatless meals and one large meal in a day, and the small meals together must equal less than the large meal. On top of fasting, we can also make additional sacrifices. Some common things to give up for the duration of Lent uh, include listening to music, watching DVDs, indulging in other entertainments such as theatre, concerts, giving up candy and desserts, alcoholic beverages. What many people do is save a few extra things to give up as it gets closer to Easter. So, for example, once Passion Tide sets in, they might also give up coffee. And then once Palm Sunday's over, they might add butter to their list of what they've given up. And then for Holy Week, they might give up meat entirely. So by the time Holy Saturday comes, you might be like an old-time prisoner living on nothing but bread and water. (laughs) (laughs) Well, an additional benefit to giving up entertainment such as outings, music and DVDs is that we are left with all this wonderful extra time, which we can and should devote to extra prayer and spiritual reading. Especially important is reading and meditating on the Passion of Our Lord. In addition to the Gospel accounts, there are many excellent books for this. As for extra prayers, we really can't go past the Stations of the Cross during Lent. For those with young children who may want to make it more ritualistic and impress the solemnity of the Stations more deeply on them, In addition to moving from station to station and doing the appropriate genuflections, you can also make a special candle holder using a cardboard one dozen sized egg crate. You can paint the crate purple or cover it with a purple cloth or paper and then you turn it upside down, cut a slit in each egg holder cup and insert a candle in each cup. You end up with a rectangular base with 12 candles, two rows of six. At the start of the stations, all the candles are lit, preferably use blessed candles. Well, of course. (laughs) And after each station is announced, uh, the designated child puts out one candle. As the stations progress, it gets dimmer and dimmer. At the twelfth station, being Jesus dies on the cross, the last candle is put out to represent that Christ, the light of the world, has died. The most solemn pause and reflection being made at this point. Of course, one can use a stations candle box for any time their young children pray the stations with them, but it makes it a more special Lenten tradition if it's just saved for use during Lent. Well, that's a great idea. And zooming in on specific days in Lent now, what have we to share, Camille? Well, a major event is Laetare Sunday, which is the fourth Sunday of Lent. It's also called Mothering Sunday because of the epistle reading that speaks of how not the Jews, but those who come to Christ regardless of their ancestry, are the inheritors of Abraham's promise. The old practice of visiting the cathedral or mother church of the diocese on this day is another reason for the name. In a Catholic customs book published in the 1950s, it's said that in England, natural mothers are honoured today, like they are elsewhere on secular Mother's Day, and that family members who don't live with their mothers will travel to their homes to visit their mothers on this day. I don't know if that's still the case for the general population in England, However, among Catholic families, flowers are given to mothers and a special cake called Simnel Cake is made for the mothers by their children to celebrate the occasion. The word Simnel is said to have come from the Latin simula, which is a high-grade flower. Simnel Cake is basically a light fruit cake with a layer of marzipan in the middle and 12 balls of marzipan decorating the top to symbolise the 12 apostles. When we come to Passion Tide, which is the final two weeks of Lent, We can imitate what is done in Catholic churches during this period by covering our crucifixes, holy images and religious statues at home with violet or purple cloths. 
This tradition only came about in the 17th century, so relatively modern times as far as the church is concerned, and there are many different reasons as to why it takes place. I came across an article that explains it very well. Once again, Dom Garanger enlightens us with a mystical interpretation of the gospel, which in former times was read on this Sunday. As Christ hid himself from the rage of the Jewish authorities, so now he is hidden from the world in preparation for the mysteries of his passion. The presentiment of that awful hour, of our Saviour's passion, leads the afflicted mother, the church, to veil the image of her Jesus. The cross is hidden from the eyes of the faithful. The statues of the saints, too, are covered, for it is but just that, if the glory of the Master be eclipsed, the servant should not appear. The interpreters of the liturgy tell us that this ceremony of veiling the crucifix during Passion Tide expresses the humiliation to which our Saviour subjected himself of hiding himself when the Jews threatened to stone him, as is related in the Gospel of Passion Sunday. The Church begins this solemn rite with the Vespers of the Saturday before Passion Sunday. Considering that in the season of our Lord's Passion, all the strength of our devotion should be directed to the cross of Christ, we may be surprised that the images of the cross are to be covered in these days. However, when we recognise that we now venerate the cross not so much as an emblem of victory, as in the triumph of the cross, but as an instrument of humiliation and suffering, we will soon understand the spiritual realities which are conveyed through the covering of the crosses. In his passion, our Saviour's divinity was almost totally eclipsed, so great was his suffering. Likewise, even his humanity was obscured, so much so that he could say through his prophet, I am a worm and no man. His face and whole body were so disfigured by the blows and scourges that our Jesus was scarcely recognisable. Thus the wounds he endured hid both his divinity and his humanity. For this reason we veil the crosses in these final days of Lent, hiding our Saviour under the sad purple cloth. Oh, that's a very good explanation. I really like that. And for our listeners who might uh, find this useful, in our family we use the same purple satin cloth for Passion Tide as we do during Advent to deck the Advent wreath and to use as table runners and similar. So these purple cloths get put to good use in both of the penitential seasons, as do our purple home altar front panels as well. Oh, that's a good point. Well, the next Sunday, Palm Sunday, is the day in which Christ entered Jerusalem. Before Mass on this day, there is the blessing of the palms, which includes an antiphon, psalms and gospel reading. Then there is a procession either around the inside of the church or outside if the weather is fine, where hymns are sung and the palms are carried. It's then customary to take the palms home with you and then you can hang them over crucifixes or holy pictures in your house or you can even fold the blessed palms into a cross and display them on their own. In Italy and Mexico, the palms are folded into very elaborate and beautiful figures. And for those who have an access to a church, such a procession can actually be reenacted at your own home. There's a tradition on Palm Sunday to eat figs, and this is because of the cursing of the fig tree in the Gospel. And the next day when they came out from Bethania, he was hungry. And when he had seen afar off a fig tree having leaves... He came, if perhaps he might find anything on it. And when he was come to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the time for figs. And answering, he said to it, May no man hereafter eat fruit of thee any more for ever. Because of this, Palm Sunday is sometimes also known as Fig Sunday. Oh, wow, really interesting. I had actually never heard of Fig Sunday before. Moving on, but before, we, before launching into Holy Week, 
We would like to remind you that you are listening to The Catholic Home on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Teresa, and I'm joined by Camille. And today, we've been discussing various Catholic customs for feast days in February and March, and also for the Lenten penitential season. We want to remind you that The Catholic Home is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. And towards the end of Holy Week, on Monday Thursday, what we do is we have a special dinner with unleavened bread, roast lamb and bitter herbs, followed by keeping our Lord company in his agony by praying and doing spiritual reading and meditating from 9pm until midnight usually at home, or when we have access to a church or chapel with the Blessed Sacrament, we will go there. So what we do is we get a number of appropriate books and printed off meditational prayers ready beforehand. And then once 9pm comes, there is silence until midnight, as each family member keeps our Lord company spiritually in the Garden of Olives, and no falling asleep allowed, because the point is that unlike the Apostles, we must stay awake with him. (laughs) Well, that's... Three hours of prayer and meditation on Maundy Thursday night, closely followed by a big day the next day. On Good Friday, if you don't have access to a true Catholic church or mass centre for public devotions, you can do the three hours meditation, which is called the Tre Ore, from midday to 3pm in honour of the time our Lord hung upon his cross at your home. Some great prayers and devotions to include in your three hours are, of course, the Holy Rosary, preferably all 15 decades, the Stations of the Cross, the Passion of Our Lord according to St. John, the Seven Last Words, the Solemn Intercessions, and you could read from books such as The Church's Year by Father Leonard Gofin or The Liturgical Year by Dom Geranger, which both have great material and meditations for Good Friday. After our three hours of prayer, we have hot cross buns for afternoon tea. The hot cross bun is a traditional English food that's been around since Tudor times. They're eaten on Good Friday because they contain eggs, fruit and spices, which were all foods that were generally forbidden during Lent, except, of course, for this solemn day. The cross on them, of course, represents Jesus on his cross. And we make our own homemade hot cross buns at my house, but we usually also have to buy some from the shop, as we tend to get through them pretty quickly, as I imagine your family must also do. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Okay, so then on Holy Saturday, there is no Mass, but instead a solemn service, being the day on which Christ is still in his tomb. I'll just read out an ancient homily for Holy Saturday. Today a great silence reigns on earth, a great silence and a great stillness. A great silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. He has gone to search for Adam, our first father, as for a lost sheep. Greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, He has gone to free from sorrow Adam in his bonds and Eve captive with him, he who is both their God and the son of Eve. I am your God, who for your sake have become your son. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. One thing you can do on Holy Saturday in preparation for Easter is colour eggs. You can either hard boil the eggs or some people blow their eggs so you just colour the shells. We usually hard boil them in my family and we colour ours in a dye made from boiling water, vinegar and food colouring. But you can use paint or colour them in with markers. 
We usually draw on them with crayons before we dye them, but you can get so creative with what you do that you can stick on ribbons, little jewels, buttons. Honestly, the possibilities are endless. Another cool thing to try is use sticky tape to cover parts of the eggs while it's being dyed. You can make some pretty nice designs that way. Also, you could try colouring one half of the egg in one colour dye and then dip the other half in a different colour. Once coloured, these eggs can be used for an egg hunt on Easter Sunday and you can use them for table decorations and they also make very nice gifts for family and friends. Probably the most famous coloured eggs are those done by the Ukrainians. These unique and artistic eggs are known as pisanka, which comes from the Ukrainian word meaning to write. The eggs are drawn on not with paint but with beeswax using the batik method. Some other methods are the driapanki method, meaning to scratch, as the surface of the dyed egg is scratched away, revealing the white eggshell underneath, and the kropanki method, meaning a dot, as the eggs are decorated using the same wax batik method, but only in dots with no other symbols or ornamentation being used. I actually found another very interesting custom for children on Holy Saturday. It's a recipe called resurrection cookies, which are a hands-on Bible lesson. The ingredients for these cookies are whole pecans, vinegar, egg whites, salt and sugar. So the cookies turn out as a sort of nutty meringue. The first thing you must do is preheat your oven. This is very important because the oven must be very hot when you put the cookies in. You then place the pecans in a plastic Ziploc bag and let the children beat them with a rolling pin or wooden spoon to break into small pieces. Explain that after Jesus was arrested, he was beaten by the Roman soldiers. And they came to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they gave him blows. Next, let the child smell and taste some vinegar. Explain that when Jesus was thirsty on the cross, he was given vinegar to drink. Afterwards, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was a vessel set there full of vinegar, and they, putting a sponge full of vinegar and hyssop, put it to his mouth. Jesus therefore, when he had taken the vinegar, said, It is consummated, and bowing his head, he gave up the ghost. Then you add the egg whites to the vinegar. Eggs represent life, and explain that Jesus gave his life to give us life. The thief cometh not, but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they may have life, and may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. Next, sprinkle a little salt into the child's hand. Let them taste it as you put the salt into the bowl and explain that it represents the salty tears shed by Jesus' followers and the bitterness of our own sin. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who bewailed and lamented him. Beat the egg whites until they're stiff and explain that the colour white represents the purity in God's eyes of those whose sins have been cleansed by Jesus. And then come and accuse me, saith the Lord, if your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. And if they be as red as crimson, they shall be white as wool. So far the ingredients are not very appetising, so add the sugar to the egg whites and give some to your children to taste. Explain that the sweetest part of the story is that Jesus died because he loves us. He wants us to know and belong to him. O taste and see that the Lord is sweet. Blessed is the man that hopeth in him. For God so loved the world, as to give his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. Next, you fold in the crushed nuts, and drop by teaspoons onto a cookie tray covered in wax paper. 
Explain that each mound represents the rocky tomb where Jesus' body was laid. Put the cookie sheet in the oven, close the door and turn the oven off. Give each child a piece of tape and seal the oven door. Explain that Jesus' tomb was sealed. And they departing made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting guards. Then you go to bed. Explain that they may feel sad to leave the cookies in the oven overnight, just as Jesus' followers were in despair when the tomb was sealed. On Easter morning, open the oven and give everyone a cookie. Notice the cracked surface and take a bite. The cookies are hollow. On the first Easter, Jesus' followers were amazed to find the tomb open and empty. So there you have it, a very interesting, educational and downright fun sounding recipe you can try for Holy Saturday. Wow, that is a terrific custom. I will definitely have to add that to our family's repertoire this Easter. And all of these you shared are very edifying customs indeed. So moving into the Solemnity of Solemnities now and the Easter season itself, what have we got, Camille? Once again, I think it's important to set the stage by reading some extracts borrowed from Dom Garanger as follows. Easter is the most sacred portion of the liturgical year and the one towards which the whole cycle converges. We shall easily understand this by reflecting upon the greatness of Easter, called the Feast of Feasts and the Solemnity of Solemnities, in the same manner as the most sacred part of the temple was called the Holy of Holies, and the Book of Sacred Scripture describing the espousal between Christ and the Church is called the Canticle of Canticles. Eastertide is, by far, the richest in mystery of all the seasons of the liturgical year, as it were, the summit of the mystery of the sacred liturgy. The Christian who enters with his whole mind and heart into the knowledge and love of the Paschal mystery has reached the very centre of the supernatural life. Therefore, we should utilise whatever practices we can to achieve this. So how are we going to achieve synchronising our practices during Eastertide with the aforementioned purposes? Well, after attending Holy Mass or doing your own Mass prayers at home if you don't have access to a church, there are many great ways to celebrate Easter Sunday which keep foremost in our family's minds at least some important aspect of this great feast. Of course, you can do the traditional Easter egg hunt with the hard-boiled eggs which the children had coloured the day before. Some people also include store-bought chocolate eggs in the hunt, which we tend to do in my family. It can be a bit of a nightmare in Australia, though, as we usually have quite a warm Easter, so if they're left out for too long, they do melt, but we still do it anyway. (laughs) During Lent, we also make various chocolates using plastic or silicon egg-shaped moulds and other moulds in various Easter themes, such as bunnies and chicks, and we use these to display on the table, or we also give them to family and friends for gifts. The main point is that we must explain each year to our young children the religious significance of the Easter egg and these other symbols, else we aren't fulfilling the purpose of such customs and the egg hunt becomes nothing more than an annual fun game. In a nutshell, or should I say an eggshell, paraphrasing from Father Wise's book, Religious Customs in the Family, the Easter egg is a symbol of the rock tomb from which our Lord gloriously emerged to the new life of his resurrection. This is a beautiful symbolism that will forever associate the Easter egg with Christ's resurrection in our children's minds, provided we have clearly explained this to them. They will then easily see the connection to the church having a special blessing of eggs at Easter in her ritual as follows. We beseech thee, O Lord, to bestow thy benign blessing upon these eggs, to make them a wholesome food for thy faithful, who gratefully partake of them in honour of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
one of our family customs which stems from this is before anyone eats anything on Easter morning, my husband, who's the father of the family, of course, blesses all our coloured hard-boiled eggs using that same blessing and sprinkles them with holy water while all of us are gathered at the breakfast table. Then he solemnly peels and cuts one or two of the eggs into bite-sized portions, places them in a fancy little dish and passes these to each member of the family who ritualistically consumes this blessed symbol of the resurrection. And at this time, a brief reminder of the religious symbolism of the Easter egg is given, and then we will all give each other the resurrection greeting, which I picked up from my childhood days when attending the Ukrainian Mass, which is Christos Voskres, which means Christ is risen, to which each other family member replies, Voistinu Voskres, which means indeed he is risen. Yeah, we do that Ukrainian greeting in my family too. On Easter Sunday, it's also customary to wear new clothes and for the women, an Easter bonnet or hat decorated with brightly coloured flowers as a symbol of the new life of our risen saviour. This is also why bunnies, chicks and eggs play such a large role in Easter tradition as they are representative of new life. Then, of course, comes the Easter feast. There's a beautiful blessing that can be used for your family's annual Easter main meal, which in Australia traditionally includes roast lamb and a leg of ham. The blessing was used traditionally in Poland. Father Weiser in the Easter book gives the following translation. O Lord, who has blessed five loaves in the desert, graciously give us bread for life's needs. Almighty God, let not thy gifts lead us to sin. Let not the goblet of sparkling wine induce us to misdeeds. While we enjoy our feast, let us also in charity remember all those who suffer want and hunger. May not the pleasure of the body stifle the inspirations of thy Holy Ghost, O Lord. Of course, the Easter meal differs greatly culture to culture. A finesca is a special Ecuadorian dish served only during Holy Week and on Easter. It's an elaborate rich stew made with 12 different beans and grains to represent the 12 disciples, as well as squash and other vegetables. Salted cod provides the protein since this soup is consumed during Lent when we as Catholics abstain from eating meat for the majority of the time. Different families will have their own unique recipes for finesca, which is labour-intensive to prepare and involves lots of peeling and shelling of beans, soaking of salted cod and cooking many ingredients separately before they can be added to the soup. Finesca is usually served with hard-boiled eggs and fried cheese empanadas. I have no idea what empanada is, but the whole thing sounds very interesting and it actually sounds like a lot of hard work. So, <laughs> sorry to interrupt, keep going. And then another tradition is a cake called Mazurek, which is a Polish Easter cake. It's been around since the 17th century and it's believed to have come from the Mazur tribe in the Mazovia region. It's very unique in appearance. It's a short cake topped with fruit, chocolate, and cream. It's then decorated with an abundance of dried fruit, nuts, meringues and seeds. These are then taken to church on Easter Sunday to be blessed along with other traditional baked goods and foods. In Switzerland they have a traditional coffee cake which is made in the shape of a wreath and then in the centre they place one of their coloured Easter eggs. Once baked it appears as though the egg is nicely resting in a brown nest. This custom has also been adopted by the Italians and it was even brought to America. However, the form of the cake changed from a wreath to a rabbit and the eggs were all placed around it rather than one just in the middle. The Italians also have a traditional soup called Brodetto Pasquale, which translates to Easter broth. 
It's a beef, lamb and vegetable broth with uh, egg yolks added to it so it thickens up a bit. And they serve it with strips of toast and parmesan cheese. I'll just read a little section from a website about the Easter lamb and its significance. Among the popular Easter symbols, the lamb is by far the most significant of this great feast. The Easter lamb, representing Christ with the flag of victory, may be seen in pictures and images in the homes of every Central and Eastern European family. The oldest prayer for the blessing of lambs can be found in the 7th century sacramentary or ritual book of the Benedictine monastery Bobbio in Italy. 200 years later, Rome had adopted it, and thereafter the main feature of the Pope's Easter dinner for many centuries was roast lamb. After the 10th century, in place of the whole lamb, smaller pieces of meat were used. In some Benedictine monasteries, however, even today, whole lambs are still blessed with the ancient prayers. The ancient tradition of the Pasch lamb also inspired among the Christians the use of lamb meat as a popular food at Easter time, and at the present time it is eaten as the main meal on Easter Sunday in many parts of Eastern Europe. Frequently, however, little figures of a lamb made of butter, pastry or even sugar have been substituted for the meat, forming Easter table centrepieces. Yeah, what we do is we make a paschal lamb out of coconut ice, that, you know, that candy substance, and we add a resurrection banner made out of paper attached to a bamboo skewer, and then we surround this with grass, well, not really grass, but um, what's meant to look like grass, made of shredded coconut that's been dyed green with food colouring, and actually makes a great table centrepiece for Easter Sunday, and only for the early part of the Easter season, because we soon learnt that you have to eat it quite quickly so it doesn't get stale. And you actually, now that you're speaking of Eastern European customs, so as I mentioned earlier, when I was a young child, our family went to the Ukrainian Rite Mass for a while, and they had some beautiful traditions for Easter. And I do remember that every Easter, the faithful would bring baskets loaded with various food and drinks, and many of them were homemade traditional Ukrainian fare. And these baskets were placed all around the church on the pavement. And most of these baskets had hand-embroidered linen cloths with traditional Ukrainian folk patterns and trimmings decorating them. Uh, from memory, they used a lot of red in their decorative trims and it was all on white linen. Anyway, the priests and the servers would go around in procession carrying these beautiful banners. And after, that was after Easter Sunday morning mass. And they'd give a special blessing to all the baskets, which the faithful would then take home and presumably consume over the Easter season. And... Now we're talking about Ukrainian traditions, but they also sung a beautiful, albeit very different, to the Latin Rite sung mass. And the Resurrection High Mass on Easter was particularly striking. And one year, our family obtained a recording of a 1970s Sydney choir singing at the Resurrection Mass. And from then on, every Easter Sunday morning, my dad would blast this record on our stereo system. Um, I think it might have been his way to wake us up earlier than we had planned on getting up to get ready for Mass. Whatever the case, it would be loud enough to shock us awake, and despite how nice it was, depending on one's musical taste, most of us children would rather be sleeping at that time. So, <laughs> now, Even though I didn't appreciate this Resurrection Sung Mass recording as a child, once I married and started my own family, I carried on the tradition. I guess it's because it just wouldn't seem like Easter Sunday to me without it. So my husband always makes fun of it, as it is rather foreign-sounding music to Latin ears. But he has always graciously humoured me and tolerated it all these years. Years later, I found out that my older children happened to mention to some of their cousins, I think you might have been among them, Camille, how they are subjected to this Ukrainian Easter Mass recording every Easter Sunday morning. 
and it turns out that most of their cousins on my side of the family are also all victims of their mothers, having also carried on the tradition that our dad started of playing the recording of this Resurrection Sung Mass every Easter morning. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So true. And something's, something we cousins all can bond over. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Continue with the Ukrainian theme then, seeing it has continued in both our families, and given we have some Ukrainian ancestry to boot, the Easter Pashka is a traditional sweet pastry cake shared by many different cultures, including Ukrainian, Polish, and Lithuanian. The name Pashka translates literally to Easter, and this cake is elaborately decorated with dough ornaments, the fancier the better, the main central motif being the cross. These cakes are then taken to church on Easter Sunday to be blessed. Um, Teresa, will you be putting a recipe for Easter Pashka on the webpage? Yeah, I will do that. So actually, to save on time, we use a recipe utilising a bread machine, but for those who like to do things the traditional handmade way, it's easy to find recipes requiring hand kneading and standard ovens. But I think I'll put up the bread machine recipe anyway. Uh, Camille, so you've got Easter Tide well and truly covered. So are there any additional customs worth sharing for later on in the year? Well, 50 days after Easter comes Pentecost Sunday, the day on which the Catholic Church, of course, was founded when the Holy Ghost descended upon the Apostles and the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's the second most important feast in the liturgical year, only after Easter. Particularly symbolic things about this day are, of course, the colour red and the dove, both representing the Holy Ghost. On Pentecost Sunday, we can give each other gifts and fruits to symbolise the gifts and fruits of the Holy Ghost. We also have a birthday cake for the church. I know it sounds a bit corny, but it is her birthday after all. And if all of us have celebrations for our own birthdays, why not have one for the church? So red being the colour of the Holy Ghost, we would use a red tablecloth that day and red napkins, candles and doilies on this feast. And why not serve some red food in addition to the red frosted cake with the red cherries or strawberries? Now what we do is we add 12 candles to the cake to represent the 12 apostles and then an extra special one in the middle to symbolise Our Lady. And when the candles are lit, the flames obviously bring to mind the tongues of fire that sat over their heads. And when blowing them out, we are reminded of the great wind that also sensibly exteriorised the coming of the Holy Ghost on that first Pentecost Sunday. That's a great idea. I think I'll have to include a birthday cake in our celebration next Pentecost. I'll have to decorate it with red icing, might even stick a candy dove on top. I could even make it a red velvet cake. Oh, that would be very appropriate. So now as we find ourselves in the time after Pentecost, there are many other great feasts that come up, such as Trinity Sunday, Feast of the Sacred Heart, the Feast of the Assumption, and Corpus Christi. It's a good idea to make novenas leading up to these feasts, and there are also some beautiful litanies that you can pray on the feast days themselves. Another great custom that my family always does is celebrating the feasts of our patron saints. On our feast days, we're given a few religious gifts, things like holy cards, religious books, statues, etc. Sometimes they throw in a sneaky block of chocolate as well, but of (laughs) course, the emphasis is always on the religious gifts. My parents also let the children choose what meal they would like for their celebration feast. It's the only day of the year that we get to choose. And then after dinner, the child whose feast day it is will read out the story of their patron saint. Speaking of saints, later on in the year, on November 1st, we of course have All Saints Day. And a great way to get the children involved in celebrating is to organise an All Saints Day party. You can have each child dress up as a different saint and all the children can take turns at telling a few facts about their chosen saint and all the other kids can try and guess who they are. They can then read out the full story of their saints once everyone's guessed. A tradition that my mum started for us many years ago 
was to have a chocolate fondue for dessert on All Saints Day with lots of different fruits, marshmallows, pieces of fruit cake to dip in the chocolate. The reason behind this choice of dessert was that all the different things to dip in the chocolate would represent the many, many different saints in heaven. Oh, trust your mum to come up with something so decadent as that to celebrate All Saints Day. It looks like I'm going to have to dig out our fondue set next November and give it a whirl because I know that my older children will listen to this and they are no doubt going to be asking me to add this scrumptious custom to our family collection. (laughs) So thanks for that. As we close out this episode, we have covered quite a number of Catholic customs for February through to the season of Pentecost to bring our homes and families in sync with the church's year. And I want to thank you, Camille, for your time and being with us on this episode. Now, is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our episode. I guess the main thing is that I really hope that all our listeners have gotten some great ideas and are inspired to really get into the liturgical year by making the effort to do at least some of these religious customs in their homes. Although it is especially important for families with young children, it is also beneficial for others, even single people out there, to do whatever it takes to keep them focused on the changing themes of the church's year. Yes, I agree. And so, well, once again, Camille, thank you for your time. And we will talk to you again next month as we continue this series. God bless you. If you have any questions for Camille or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at catholichome at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments to Camille. And we would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy and guests who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration... I am Teresa. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.